0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When last in this book we finished chapter 4, which records the devastating defeat of Israel at the hands of the hated Philistines in which over 34,000 soldiers died, including the death of both of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. This shocking news of the capture of the Ark also caused the death of Eli, as we read in the text, the old and heavy high priest who fell over backward and his neck was broken. And also the death of Eli's daughter-in-law as she gave birth to a son. The news of the captured ark and the death of her father-in-law and husband was just too much for her to bear. Her dying words close out chapter 4 in rather dramatic fashion. We read in chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So for the disobedient and idolatrous people of Israel, God had determined to judge and replace the wicked leadership of Eli and his sons and his whole house by literally getting rid of them. God let Eli know this and even used his newly appointed prophet Samuel to communicate this. As God does what he said he would do, all the rest of the people of Israel are affected. This, doesn't, this wasn't just aimed at Eli and his sons. Everybody was affected. This is a people in covenant with God, and there were blessings and curses in this covenant based on their obedience. Sin has horrid consequences. And we see here the immediate result for the people as a whole, military defeat and over 34,000 casualties. But the main thing was God's chastisement in his apparent departure because the ark was captured. The people as a whole were idolatrous and rebellious and disobedient, so you could say that God left them to themselves for a while. It's what they wanted. That's what they got. Today, in chapter five, we're told what happened when the ark was put in Philistine hands. If you're able, would you please stand as I read First Samuel chapter five? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. At this point, Christians can laugh. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away The ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is no accident today's theme, starting with the men's Bible study, Sunday school, and this sermon, are all intricately related. And if you are depressed and discouraged because of the state of what's going on in the world that we live in, especially our own place, then I hope that you get God's message today which should encourage you beyond measure. We're talking about the supremacy and the severity of Jehovah God. God is up to something here. And isn't it wonderful that his lessons are directed at our hearts and we have a chance to embrace them. The Philistines had five major cities in the territory they controlled along the Mediterranean coast. In fact, they were called the Pentapolis. And three of the five are going to have serious trouble hosting the Ark of God here in Chapter 5, as we've just seen. Ashdod was three miles inland from the sea and only about 35 miles as the crow flies west of Jerusalem, but with all the hills and wadis and rough hill country, of course, it looked like forever to people who were used to getting around on foot. The captured ark was brought to Ashdod and into the house of Dagon and set up beside Dagon. Why didn't they just destroy the ark? Why did they put it in their own shrine by their own God? This sounds a lot like the attitude that we see towards God today. Most people don't want to really do away with God altogether. They just want to domesticate Him and have Him around. One preacher explained it like this. We see this in the desire of non-Christian people to be married in the church. Why should they want to? We see it in the use of a Bible, in the invocation of God's name, when public officials are sworn into office. Not many actually believe in the Bible, and its teaching is forbidden in public affairs, but if it can be taken off the shelf to lend a little sanctity to our government, then that's fine. Our courts and legislative sessions open with prayers for God to bless America, and anytime something serious happens, some disaster the last thing any official, especially the ones higher up, will say is, and God bless America. So long as God does not try to tell anyone what to do, God bless America. This is what the Philistines intended for the ark. God could remain, this Israel God could remain, if he just sat behind the Philistine God and stayed quiet. In other terms, the defeated God, Yahweh, because people equated their wars with the God of that particular place, so the Philistines had routed the Israelites, so obviously Yahweh, Jehovah God, was defeated. He was brought before Dagon, the victorious God. So everybody could see. But just in case that Israelite God woke up and had some power, they wanted him there, you know, to maybe bless them some along with it. But surprise, surprise, what does God do? The very next morning, the Philistines found their God, Dagon, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Don't miss this. Dagon is bowing before the ark of the only true God. Couldn't be any clearer. So no big deal. The Philistines just put him back in his place. The scripture here is delivering quite a blow. This false God has to be stood back up, so powerless, so inept, that people had to put him back where he belongs. What kind of God is that? That's why some laughter is appropriate here. If it encourages your heart and you need to laugh, you need to do it because you'll remember it better. But it gets worse for the Philistines, doesn't it? When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground. And the author could have put, again, but he knows we get it. Fallen down downward on the ground, again before the Ark of the Lord. But this time, the head of Dagon, And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Was it enough for him just to fall off? This time God does what ancient peoples understood as the most demeaning, powerful display possible. Which God is greater in this little contest? Well, we know one is just no God at all, which God was trying to get across, and he did so in a very, very powerful way. Dale Ralph Davis describes it with a quote that I just have to share with you because it's just so good. Dagon is simply getting the godness knocked out of him. In just these five verses, we see Dagon's homage to the real God. We see Dagon's complete and utter helplessness. And we see Dagon's destruction. What does God want his people, including all of us, to see here? We're going to recycle these truths through the message this morning, but right here, what, what's so obvious? That Jehovah God does not have to have someone come and set him back up. He can fight the Philistines by himself. He doesn't need his people to cheer him on. He will bring back his ark all by himself. In other words, he is teaching and reminding his people who had just presumptively gone into a battle without even consulting him just because he'd risen up a prophet again who could speak his words, but they didn't want to know what he said. So we can do this now. We've got it. Oh, we got slaughtered in the first part of this battle. Let's go get the ark and bring it back and we'll bring it into battle with us and that will give us the victory. Even worse defeat. Do you see what God's doing? The other side of this coin is that, then, the people should not ever think, and this means us, too, that the living God can be manipulated like a lucky charm for our own convenience or that God needs us to support him and carry him. Because if any carrying is to be done, he will carry you and I. And I know you women will get there eventually. I don't have a clue what year that will be. But in Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. That's especially relevant for many of us. He and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Same message. It's just here in 1 Samuel, it's all visual. Literally visual. It's very important here to make sure that we understand Our difference, Christianity's difference, with ordinary paganism. In ordinary paganism, any false god is dependent upon man. In other words, the gods depend on man to to sustain them. Does Israel in the time of 1 Samuel need to know this and deal with this truth? Yes, they do. God is showing the Philistines his his supremacy over their god, Dagon. That's clear. But he's using that to teach Israel that he is not like Dagon, helpless and needing to be protected and sustained by those who would worship him. How are we, how are today's Christians susceptible to this kind of insidious notion? There are elements in in a couple of lines I'm going to read right here that are true. Um, but we need to be alert and discerning enough to see what's wrong with some of this so that we can see and keep hold of this message that God has shown us here so we won't operate out of an arrogant, presumptuous heart that sees ourselves as indispensable. and thinks that God is impotent without our own strength. Quote, Somehow he needed me. Quote, God has no hands but our hands, no feet but our feet to do his will. See the truth in that, but do you also see the danger in that? And that one is really popular today. Rise up, O men of God, and end the night of wrong. Now these are stirring lines or songs, and some are very popular but they also may be way too cocky concerning us. And so actually, if that's true, then they would be demeaning to the God that we say we trust and believe in. I'm not saying that we should not serve Yahweh with all of our might. That is not the point here. That's not what I'm saying. But that we must beware of Christian arrogance as we serve Him with all of our might. Because if we do, we cast God in Dagon's image as we seek to hum... What we need to do instead of that is to seek God humbly and serve Him with all of our might. Now, God does want us. But that does not mean that God desperately needs us. There is a distinction there. Other places in Scripture, when people have gotten arrogant and thinking that they are indispensable to God, Jesus says something like, I could raise up rocks to accomplish my will. But in his grand plan, which we don't know all the details of, he has chosen to use us. For certain instances, we, our job is not to let our hearts become arrogant and prideful and to think that we can manipulate God or that something's not going to happen because we've done this. If we're faithful, then God will do this. And it's really easy to slip there. The question is how to live in light of these two truths, that God is totally self-sufficient, and secondly, that he graciously uses us in his service. And obviously, this is a lesson we may have to learn over and over, but these people, wow, they got a tough, tough lesson here. Verse 5 in our text refers to the continuing blindness of the Philistine priest who, even when faced with God's vivid demonstration of Dagon's ridiculous and helpless frailty, still did what? Did you get this? They kept as sacred the threshold upon which the pieces of their broken God had fallen. He fell off, he was broken, and where he hit, they said, this is holy ground. That's how far our arrogance goes when we just go that direction apart from the true one. Now, in verses 6 through 12 here in chapter 5, we see God's demonstration of His own power, don't we? Uh, Because what He does here... This is not confined now to Dagon's temple. It leaves Dagon's temple. God works wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. And what he does, the text says, is to terrify and afflict the people in each city and the surrounding area of each city that the captured ark was taken to. The afflicting tumors here seem to describe, we don't know for sure, the swellings of people's armpits, groins, and sides of their necks that are symptoms of the something like the bubonic plague, of which rats are carriers. And when we get to chapter 6, you're going to see that when they did send the ark back, they put in with the ark as a sacrifice, offering to the God that had just been destroying them mightily and made his greatness known. So, what? Golden mice, rats. So that's why they would think there's a connection there in describing what these tumors were all about. And we'll get there. You can look forward to that event. But here we see that terror gripped Ashdod, and the people demanded the ark be taken somewhere else. Verse 7, the last part, they said, The ark of God of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us, and against David. De- Dagon, our God, so they decided to send it to another main city. And we we don't understand how great this suffering was from these people. There was people dying right and left, people getting these tumors, and there wasn't any question with these people about why. They knew it was because of the God of Israel working, showing who was the real God because of what he did first in the temple with their own God. You can imagine how fast all that must have been spread by word of mouth throughout this land. So they sent it where? To Gath, another one of their main cities, and the same thing happened there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, and this is... A little more information, what happened? Causing a very great panic. And he, you notice it's not a it right here, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So these people said, get this thing out of here. So they sent it where? To Ekron, another major city. Step back and ask a question. Could Israel's mighty military force have more or less destroyed the three major Philistine cities the way God did? By Having the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized his presence. Of course, he can be anywhere he wants. In those places, with them deriding and demeaning him? I don't think so. So the undercurrent there is what? God is supreme. He does what pleases him. He doesn't need us if we get right down to it. We operate out of strength when we realize that and then serve him with all of our strength. Now there's a deathly panic in Ekron. Verses 10 through 12, So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So all of a sudden, it's a conspiracy theory of their own government. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy heavy there that is a scary sentence the hand of God was very heavy there the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven so they decided to send it back to Israel Martin Lloyd Jones in the 50's compared God's humbling of Dagon and this is the 50's did everybody get that I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're alive in the 50s. We all know who those people are. Compared the humbling of Dagon to the early decades of the 20th century. So we need a history lesson. This is going to be really brief. It's an outline, but we need it. As an example, the 19th century ended with an arrogant confidence across the board of a golden era of humanism that man can accomplish anything and everything because of all the scientific discoveries and advancements man evolving into a self-made and self-glorifying paradise was, was in most people's minds and it was because of his science knowledge and just Knowledge itself was just seemed like growing geometric proportions. And for most people, and you see this if you go, especially in our country, over to the East Coast, um, you can see remnants of it still, um, that religion was seen as finally on the shelf. Some of the greatest churches and denominations in our land had turned to false. Heresies like Unitarianism, there's one down the street, still around, still here, uh, where they took Christ off the cross, We're not really sinners. In other words, it wasn't Christianity. And it was growing across America, especially as the population had moved west. And so what became the real savior? Education Education is important. It's great. But if we could just get everybody educated, then we can solve all of our problems ourselves. We don't have to ask God anything. Education would be able to do away with war and poverty, and this was the mindset of the culture of this nation at that time in history. It was seated in people's thinking. And in 1912, the unsinkable Titanic sank. And then the war that couldn't happen happened. Dagon had fallen off the shelf. But when it was finally over, it didn't take long to hear that, what, every history book has this, the war to end all wars was over, what a joke, what's that, that's, a, that's another way of saying, well, let's just put Dagon back in its place. Just like the Philistines after God's demonstration of power and their own humbling. You see the pattern here that's growing? What Martin Lloyd-Jones is trying to do and what everybody who who ties history in with these accounts is trying to prove is that when man raises up his own works and his idols, in other words, himself and his own knowledge, it may go on for a while, it may excel for a while, it may be exciting, and people are drawn away from God because they're into this mass thing. And it's different in different places. But always, God will humble. And at some point, those very idols will be shattered themselves. That's what this text is trying to get us to see. Our hope is in the Lord God Almighty. It's not in our abilities to solve it ourselves. And sometimes those are sort of connected, hopefully, as people who know him serve him by going after solutions. But if we take him out of the the picture, it's going to be tough. In fact, we're going to be dragged into the humbling process if we're a part of this culture anyway, which we already are and why so many of you and me as well are so saddened when we see all this stuff happening. It shouldn't surprise us, should it? This cycle that we're talking about was typical of the period of the judges for Israel, of which Samuel was the last judge. So see, this, this is another just vivid illustration of what the Old Testament and the whole scriptures are teaching us. Because it's throughout history. The 20th century, now we could just rattle this off, was wracked by the rise of the Nazis and World War II, communism of Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot. Some of you are going, who in the world was that? Well, anybody that was alive then knows. Cambodian revolutionary. mounds and mounds of human skulls and bones found after the Vietnam War. and guy's crazy. And we wonder why people are trying to get out of there as fast as possible. And even the very real threat, very real threat, in the 60s of nuclear holocaust. There was a house in one part of Houston that was supposed to be nuclear bomb proof. Yeah, it was on the news, so that made it true. And every family in Houston, I didn't ask Marty this question, but I know we took a ride over there. You know, on Sunday afternoon, you went driving around with your family to see the sights and glory in the great, whatever it is that's there, and we went to see this house because it was so real. And the pictures you see of little kids in elementary school hiding under their desk or running into the big hall in the middle of the deal and getting down on the ground, those were real. We did that. I did that. Because, you know, that may give us a chance if we get blasted because Houston was a target because of the space program, but mainly then because of the oil industry which means if you can get rid of that, which is where everybody was, then you could just cripple the whole country with a couple of shots. It was real. The Cuban Missile Crisis was real. And even in the face of continuing human arrogance and defiance of God, God continues to knock man's idols off their little shelves, demonstrating that he is self-sufficient and supreme. But postmodern man continues to adopt new and different strategies to rebel against God's sovereignty. Right now, we face the repercussions, incredible repercussions, of the continuing and more and more brazen sexual revolution with people denying their personal responsibility and the diseases and social destruction that accompany the destruction of marriage and gender roles in the family? Do we see that as God's humbling hand in letting us do what we want to do, which is His judgment, as Romans 1 clearly teaches? On the one hand, we see pleas for the protection of children, While at the very same time, abortion kills the children before they can even enter the world. And lifestyle choices imperil them from knowing who they are and what they're here for. This is total moral chaos. And are we humbled? Is our land humbled? Nope. Just put Dagon back up on the shelf because we want to still do what we want to do. And just this last week, terror struck yet again in another American educational community college in Oregon. Again? You know, Columbine surprised us. And now only 16 and a half years later, it's almost a weekly occurrence. Europe already is a picture of our immediate future. Sexual immorality coupled with the demise of marriage and a corresponding disinterest in children has produced a birth rate so low that numerous, not just one, numerous European ethnicities are actually in danger of vanishing as immigrants from North, from southeastern Europe and the Middle East and northern Africa rapidly move in to occupy vacant space in the European landscape. Is anybody noticing, see, that the perils facing Europeans are just some of the results of the whole culture denying God? Churches from hundreds of years ago are nightclubs and museums and it's dead or are we blaming the immigrants for trying to find a place of their own to escape to yeah there's some dangers there but don't miss the point who is calling out selfish immoral, materialistic American culture In and of itself, the deteriorating condition of our culture and its people are a sign of God's judgment of ignoring and defying Him. And we we need to realize that and not panic because this is God working to bring to people's attention that He is God. And we can't be God. And that may be a paradigm shelf in our, uh, shift in our thinking, but it's a necessary one, as we saw in Sunday school this morning. We shouldn't be surprised. We should look on people as they, they don't have the answer. So they're, they're doing what sinners do without God. This is all they got. But, Will we, like the Europeans, self-destruct by living the way we want to in opposition of him? But will this humbling and the growing tears of life apart from God be enough for people to see their true need and ask for the Savior? And you'd think that would be logical. See, but sometimes logic is not part of the equation, is it? Will people see their idols as the broken Dagon's they really are? We need to understand that's what's going on. The Philistines saw God's heavy hand and they still resisted. it. They just put Dagon back on the shelf and get this, and you saw this. And then when they couldn't take it anymore, what did they do? In chapter 6, we find out they just wanted to get rid of God altogether. This should be hitting every cord in our thinking and in our hearts. I want to close today with some thoughts uh, that I hope are helpful because Christians see, we see so much hostility to the gospel, growing hostility, and so much of the sensual and Selfish, materialistic influence from every sector of the culture now. Even many Christian churches have concluded that we must join the Pharisees if we're ever to win them. We've seen today that while they were enemies, Israel had put the God, the God, on their own shelf, which is why God was working. He wasn't going to let that stay like that forever. And he continually, in his mercy and grace, raised up somebody like Samuel, many. Samuel's mother. People, we nobody would even know who they were. But every once in a while, God gives us lots of people in the Bible that we're going, Hey, they, they look kind of normal. Just like maybe me. And wherever sphere you're in, this is important. And we've seen today that while they were, they were enemies, Israel had put the God their God on, the, on their own shelf. The Philistines had better technology and organization. We've seen them. And, and even bigger men, we're going to find out later, Goliath was not alone in this category. There, there was more than one. The Israelites mirrored Philistine idolatry and had put God on the shelf trying to use him when they were in trouble to get out of it and then get glory for themselves without caring if they worshipped him from their hearts or whether they were obeying him, which is what God was concerned about, that they weren't worshipping him in their hearts. Yet how easy was it for God to throw Dagon down on his face? Poof. You're gone, Dagon. I mean, God can do it any time. Did they recognize this distinction about God, the God that they said with their lips they served? So, what did God prove here? We need to list these things just real quick, just to see it. He proved that He's a living God. There weren't any secret Israeli black op guys going into the temple of Dagon to throw the thing on the ground. Okay, this is God doing it. He's a living God. He's not made out of something that you can cut up and whatever. He taught that he's the only true God. And how about this? On a national level for us, if we make a God of government, We need to think about this even if it's hard. Then God will send corrupt and incompetent leaders. If we make a God of the economy, God will make the stock market plummet. If we make science the God, if we use science to violate his laws, then God will make our technology a curse in our lives and it's already there did you hear that if we use science to violate his laws and there are so many moral issues right now even Aflac will go wrong God demands that all things, presidencies, corporate earnings, fighter planes, and microscopes be submitted to his sovereign rule. And that's, you can take it from there. Third, the living and true God proved that he is powerful and mighty. There is no chance of withstanding God's judgment, either now or in the end. And for this reason, the the chances of the things that we're worried about is taking over everything, it's, it's not going to last. But again, we may be in the damage, in the suffering as it goes on. And you know what? God also reveals himself as a savings God. And you know, the Philistines should have reflected on what God was doing to the enemies of his people and how faithful this God was to allow himself via the ark to fall into the hands of his enemies that he might better save Israel. That's quite a plan. But did they? We don't hear of anybody. Reflecting on God's covenant-keeping grace, the Philistines should have cast out Dagon and every other false god and embraced the one that they knew. Had just demonstrated his power over their idol, but they did not do it. So, is the church's primary job to cast down the Philistine gods by any means possible or at hand? Is that our job? You see, it's not our primary job, it's the job of God's people. To honor God in all things, to refuse to join in the world's idolatry, and to remain faithful. That's our job. It's going to look different. There'll be different opportunities, but he's made us all different, but it's in different places for that reason. Ephesians 6.11 tells us to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're not told to go on the offensive against Satan. And this is a spiritual war, and we're we are we are going to be used, and it's going to feel like it. But I think the point is made. But we're told to withstand in the evil day. Quote Ephesians six thirteen, and having done all, to stand firm. This does not mean that Christians should not speak out against all lies and evil oh, are you supposed to do that? It simply means that the church and its spiritual mission is not called to wage worldly warfare against our enemies using their means and methods. In his own time, in his own ways, we can be sure that God will humble the idols of the world. And, and The first part of that is really important. In his own time, In his own ways, we can be sure that God will do that. We're to remember the Lord, trusting in him, spreading his gospel as we do so. Let's pray. Oh, God, what a calling you've given us in Christ Jesus, your son. We are awed at your redemptive plan to save men and women by the person and work of your own son that you sent to earth to accomplish this task on our behalf. We love you. We we say we are your servants. Oh God, we know that that is beginning to, to be put to the test more and more and more in the world that we live. We pray for wisdom and steadfastness. We pray for eyes to see the tremendous need the despair and the pain of people who have tried to get rid of you and are not willing to see uh, your work they're blind we pray that you'd open eyes and we know that so many times you do that in in small ways in our interactions with people every day wherever you put us And, God, we pray that we would have the hearts to see the need and that we would be willing to share the gospel, that we would love the people that we're sharing with even even if they hurt us. And we pray that we could raise the next generation with these truths in mind and demonstrate it ourselves, that we will not panic, that we know that, that you are big and the idols are small. Thank you for putting us at this time of history for for your reasons, and we are privileged to know that is true, and we pray that as a smaller body of Christ here in Amarillo that we would recognize our calling, that we would honor you in all things, that we would be a voice of hope as we proclaim and share the gospel that we would um, love those who are enemies without compromising the truth that we could remain faithful and stand firm and we ask that in Jesus precious name amen would you please stand for our benediction